All right, tonight I'm going to forego the, t- my typical reading of the biblical passage just for the sake of time because I can already tell I'm not going to get all my material covered tonight. And tonight we're doing part two of the crucifixion. Now last week we focused on the cruci- crucifixion, but we focused on understanding what crucifixion entailed. And so we didn't really talk about the events and the activities and the things going on as Jesus was crucified. We just focused on what does crucifixion mean. And this week I want to focus on the, the things that are happening at Calvary during those last few hours. And the way I want to do this is I, I want to be guided by the seven statements Jesus makes from the cross. He will speak seven different times, and just about everything that happens around the cross can be connected to one of those statements. And so that's going to be our our way of working through this study tonight. Again, I'm not going to read the the text or the passage except for when we get to these individual statements, and we're just going to try to get through as much of this as we can. Next week is our last meeting together in this uh, study. We've been at the Life of Christ for three quarters now. I was hoping to get all the way through the resurrection. We'll see, uh, because I might even be spilling over with the crucifixion for a little bit of next week, but we'll, we'll do the best we can. So let's start with the, um, the first time Jesus speaks from the cross. Let's just, anybody know what the first statement from the cross chronologically was? You got a one in seven chance. Now that was not the chronologically first one, but it rhymes with first. What was that? Oh, no, no, for about his mother? Nope, no, that was not the first. But it was probably the second. Come on, Brother Gene. <laughs> the, the first, I mean, do we really know which one the first one is? Probably not. But the most likely candidate from most scholars is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, at least, I could be wrong on this one. But I get to be the teacher, so I get to pick which one I want to be first. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Now, I want you to think for a moment when you look at the text and you hear, you see this statement Jesus utters from the cross, and it is one of his longer statements from the cross, which is worth noting because uh, his, his statements get shorter uh, the longer he's up there, it, so it seems at least. I want you to think for a moment, who is Jesus requesting forgiveness for. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do, who is the them and the they here? It's a lot of different people, isn't it? When he says that, you got to think that has to include the soldiers who nailed him to the cross, those individuals who had driven the nails through his hands, those, those soldiers who had divided his garments and cast lots for his uh, tunic, those soldiers who were keeping watch over him, those soldiers who were responsible for ensuring that he was dead before he was removed from the cross, those that inflicted the, the physical punishment on him. That's going to be included in the them and the they here. And as I heard uh, someone else uh, reference, it's going to be that crowd the crowd that mocked him, the crowd that included both passerbys who likely did not witness all the events of that day, um, the religious leaders like the chief priests, scribes, and elders who orchestrated his execution, 
that crowd who mocked his proclamation about destroying and rebuilding the temple, that crowd that mocked his miracles, his identity, and sarcastically requested a sign from him, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that includes the people who brought about his execution, the people who rendered his execution, and the people who made fun of him in the process. And I want you to think, why, why Jesus, why did he request forgiveness? In that statement, the why is because they don't know what they're doing. Really? They didn't know what they were doing. When I read about those Jewish religious leaders, they seem to know exactly what they were doing. In fact, they had been plotting for quite a long time to orchestrate this. They knew how to get Jesus, or let me rephrase it, they knew how to get to Jesus using one of his own disciples to betray him. They knew when to make the arrest. They knew exactly how many members of the Sanhedrin they needed to get a guilty verdict. They knew exactly what to accuse Jesus of when they met with Pilate. They knew exactly what to do to stir up the masses. They knew exactly what to do to ask for a punishment, what they wanted to ask for as punishment. They knew exactly what they were doing. And when you think about those soldiers, I think they knew what they were doing too. The Romans were experts in execution. They had devised a manner of execution unlike any other people before them. They had so perfected crucifixion that they could keep a criminal alive for so many hours, so many days even, before they succumb. Jesus would experience the complete gambit of pain and suffering. Those soldiers were professionals, experts at their craft. They knew exactly what they were doing. But I don't really think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. I don't think he's saying that the religious leaders didn't know what they were doing when they orchestrated his murder, and I don't think he was saying that the soldiers didn't know what they were doing as they oversaw his execution. I think that he's saying that they don't realize the significance of what they're doing. As one author wrote, they were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. They were blinded to the full reality that they were crucifying God the Son. They did not realize that the one they were putting to death was the light of the world. I think this is where a statement of Paul's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8 comes into play. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul said, None of the rulers of this age understood this, and that this is a reference to the wisdom of God. None of the rulers of the age understood the wisdom of God, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I think what Jesus is saying is they didn't realize that they were playing right into the hands of Satan and that they were going right along with God's scheme of redemption. And so Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The other thing that stands out to me about this statement of Jesus is is that it's a request rather than a pronouncement. Jesus is asking the Father to forgive here, not stating that forgiveness has been extended. And interestingly, it's here on the cross that Jesus 
for the first time, asks the Father to forgive someone. Up until this point, it's never been necessary because Jesus possessed the authority to forgive sins himself. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looked at this paralytic man and said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's Jesus pronouncing forgiveness, not requesting forgiveness. And that pronouncement angered the religious leaders because they understood only God had the right and the ability to forgive sins, and so they equated Jesus' forgiveness of this man's sins as blasphemy, all because they could not comprehend that he was God in the flesh. And so we have these instances where Jesus will pronounce forgiveness of people, like the paralytic, or like the woman caught in adultery. But this time, he doesn't pronounce it, he requests it. He asks for it. Do you know why? It's because he's about to become sin. What he is doing on that cross is taking on sin. And so, in the moment, he's the sacrificial lamb. He's the scapegoat. He's the embodiment of sin. So he cannot forgive sin because he is too busy bearing sin. So he asks the Father to forgive. There's a lot to unpack from this first statement of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. From there, I, just using the chronology that I've, I've come up with out of the studies I've done, I would turn to this second statement. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43. So same chapter as the previous statement. And as you likely know, this is a statement Jesus spoke to one of the criminals who was crucified with him. If you'll turn to Luke 23, you can get the context for this account, particularly if you back up to verse 32 of Luke 23, where we're informed that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And it's a conversation with these two criminals that leads to Jesus' second statement from the cross. Now, the term translated criminal refers generically to a, uh, to a malefactor, an individual who commits any sort of crime. See, when we hear criminal, we kind of have an association with somebody who's probably stealing or something like that. Someone who's breaking the law in some fashion, but it doesn't have to be heinous or anything. But the term that's actually being translated here has a little bit more of a heinous tone to it than we might attribute. And it's interesting because Matthew chapter 27 and verse 38, as well as Mark chapter 15 and verse 27, they specifically refer to these guys that are being crucified with Jesus as robbers at least in the English Standard Version, in the New American Standard Version, and the New King James Version. The NIV will refer to them in those passages as rebels, and at least one modern translation uses the term revolutionaries. The point is, regardless of what these guys were, the point is that they are not just unfortunate shoplifters who are just trying to survive on the hardened streets of Palestine like Aladdin in the Disney movie. These guys were hardened criminals 
who at the very least were guilty of stealing and possibly guilty of much more. And it's interesting because in relation to these two guys, where is Jesus positioned? In the middle. Luke chapter, or John chapter 19, verse 18 indicates that he was between them. Luke chapter 23 and verse 33 says one uh, was on Jesus' right and the other on his left. It's interesting because based on his positioning in the center of these criminals, most of the bystanders likely assume that Jesus was at the very least just like them. He's in the midst of them. And it could even be that they think he's one of them. He's part of their gang or whatever it is, part of their group. In fact, many commentators believe that these two criminals were associates of Barabbas and that the cross on which Jesus hung was intended to be reserved for Barabbas. If you recall, Jesus and Barabbas are uh, presented to the crowds and they're optioned off. Which one do you want? And the crowd chose Jesus for execution, Barabbas for, for release. And if you recall, if in fact these guys are associates of Barabbas and Barabbas was meant for that third cross, the crimes that Barabbas is associated with in Scripture include insurrection and murder. And regardless of whether or not there's a connection between Barabbas and these criminals, one thing we know is that these criminals were of his ilk, of his kind. In my studies, I, was, I discovered that Typically, it's standard practice for the Romans to crucify the worst offender in the middle of those who were being crucified. And even though Jesus was a blasphemer in the eyes of the Jews, and that was the worst of the worst for them, to the Romans, he's presented as an insurrectionist, a threat to the emperor. So maybe that's why he's in the middle. Maybe his positioning has less to do with his connection to these two individuals and or, or Barabbas, I should say, and more to do with the fact that they viewed his crime as greater. It's all speculation, but it's worth mentioning. And in, the, in this conversation that unfolds between him and these two criminals, we find out that the first criminal sarcastically requests for Jesus to save him. If you look at verse 39 of Luke chapter 23, it tells us that the first criminal was railing Jesus, hurling insults at Jesus, or blaspheming Jesus, depending on which translation you use. In other words, this criminal is making fun of Jesus. This criminal is taunting Jesus. This criminal is slandering Jesus. This criminal is cursing Jesus, even. So when he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. We know that it's not a sincere request. It's said sarcastically. And the truth is, this criminal's not really worried about Jesus saving Jesus or Jesus saving the other criminal. This guy only concerned about himself. And his sarcasm is revealing that. And I want you to notice, if you look at verse 39 of Luke 23, how Jesus responded to this guy. Do you see his response? He didn't. Jesus was silent. And in his silence, he was putting his own preaching into practice. 
Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 41, where Jesus says, You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I think Jesus is putting into practice his own standard of non-retaliation. As he deals with the comments of the first criminal. the criminal who sarcastically requested to be saved. But then there's that other guy, that second criminal, who makes a sincere request for Jesus to remember him. Now, according to Luke's account, the second criminal rebuked the first criminal. But don't assume that this guy, this second criminal, is a saint, because Matthew's gospel indicates that both criminals were insulting Jesus at one point. If you look at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 44, they were both pretending like Jesus was no better than they were. But for some reason, a change occurred in this second criminal. And if you look at Luke chapter 23, verse 40 and 41, he said this to the first criminal. He said, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I've often wondered. Luke's is the only gospel, Luke is the only gospel, to mention this criminal defending Jesus. Matthew indicates that both criminals were insulting Jesus. So I've often wondered what, what happened. It sounds like both guys were anti-Jesus at first, and this guy went through a change of heart, and now he's defending Jesus. How did this second criminal change? I like to think it's because he noticed that Jesus handled the circumstances differently. Jesus is being brutally mocked. The crowds have relentlessly said things like, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. He's hearing the crowds shout things like this at Jesus, and Jesus doesn't react. We all know what it's like to be criticized, insulted, attacked. And I imagine that for most of us, it's natural to retaliate when someone attacks us like that. But as one preacher said, Jesus took this criminal's insults with holy silence. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. That's Acts chapter 8, verse 32, quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 and 8. And the only break in Jesus' silence on the cross up to this point would have been when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Which may have been something this second criminal heard. In fact, it's just five verses after Jesus' request for forgiveness that this criminal came to Jesus' defense. And the end result seems to be that the second criminal came to believe 
that Jesus was, in fact, king. Because Jesus' reaction, or maybe more precisely, his lack of reaction, spoke louder than words. See, this criminal may have been hurling insults at the beginning, but now things have changed because he has never seen anyone like Jesus before. And as a result, he acknowledged Jesus' innocence, then made a request for Jesus to remember him. And don't take that request lightly. There is more being professed by this criminal in the request to be remembered than we might realize. See, first by saying, when you come into your kingdom, this criminal is acknowledging that Jesus, in fact, is a king that will reign in spite of his imminent death. As a result, this criminal was the only person who defended Jesus as he hung on the cross. He was the only person who acknowledged Jesus' innocence at Calvary. He was the only person to express belief in Jesus between his conviction and his crucifixion. And he was the only person in the moment who believed that death would not have the final say for Jesus. So when he said, when you come into your kingdom, he's acknowledging that Jesus has a kingdom, that Jesus reigns. Something that every disciple has to acknowledge at some point. And then by asking Jesus to remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal was ultimately requesting salvation. He's making the same request of Jesus that Joseph made of the cupbearer after interpreting his dream in Genesis chapter 40 and verse 14. Remember me when you appear before Pharaoh. Remember me. That was Joseph's way of saying, rescue me. Save me. Remember me. That's what this criminal is requesting of Jesus. He's asking for Jesus to rescue him. So implicit within this request is an acknowledgement of Jesus' ability to save, as well as the criminal's need for salvation. And Jesus responds not with silence, but with mercy. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now what is Jesus ultimately saying to this guy? Think about that phrase, you will be with me. Jesus indicated that this criminal will go wherever he goes. Do you remember what Jesus discussed with his disciples following the Last Supper in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus just hours before his death, promised his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them so that they might one day be where he is. And here on the cross, he is informing this criminal that upon his death, he too will be where Jesus is. Now, it's not my intent with this study to get into the uh, specifics of what the afterlife holds in store for us, where we go immediately after, uh, upon our death and, and all that. I don't want to dive into all that. That's for another day in time. 
All we need to know is that Jesus is promising this criminal that in the end, he's going to be where Jesus is. And the other thing about that statement Jesus makes to this guy, he says, you will be with me in paradise. In the New Testament, paradise is the term most often used in reference to the final abode of the righteous. It's set in contrast with Gehenna, which is the term used to refer to the final abode of the wicked. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul spoke of a man he knew, which is assumedly himself, a man he knew who was caught up into paradise, which he also identified as the third heaven. In Jewish thought, the third heaven was the abode of God. You have our sky, space, first and second heavens, third heaven being the abode of God. Therefore, it seems that Paul associated paradise with the home of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. That's one use of the word paradise in the New Testament. A second use of the term paradise is Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, where Jesus informed the church in Ephesus that he will grant the one who conquers to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life makes its final appearance at the end of Revelation, where it appears in conjunction with the throne of God, and a description of heaven, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 2. That's the second time the word paradise is used. The third time and final time the word paradise is used in the New Testament is here in Luke 23, where Jesus tells this guy, you will be with me in paradise. Three times, or the, you're only going to see paradise three times in the New Testament. And these three occasions are the only appearances of the term and based on this term's use in 2 Corinthians and Revelation, it appears that Jesus is telling this criminal that he will receive salvation. Now that brings up an interesting question. How is the criminal able to be saved if he was never baptized? I'm going to let Gene come up and explain that now. Just kidding. You know, some people look at the thief on the cross and make a whole lot more out of this story than needs to be made. They'll say that the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, therefore we don't need to be baptized. Others will say that there must be more to the story, like he must have been a disciple of John the Baptist, or he must have been baptized during the ministry of Jesus. But we don't know that. Those details aren't provided. Say what? Well, let me, let me get to that. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. We make a lot more out of the lack of information than we should. All we need to know is that Jesus saw this man's faith and as a result said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus exercised his divine prerogative and authority to grant this man salvation while he was on earth. Just as he had exercised that with the paralytic, when he said, your sins are forgiven, and just as he did with the woman caught in adultery when he says, neither do I condemn you, go and from now on sin no more. Now I know I just talked about that first statement, Father, forgive them, and how it was a request rather than a pronouncement. And so how is he now pronouncing salvation to this guy? He's Jesus. Jesus can do what he wants. 
This criminal was saved, though, in the exact same way that the heroes of faith in the Old Testament were saved, and in the exact same way that you and I are saved today. We just don't get it. He's saved by grace through faith. The only difference is that his contact with saving grace was in the person of Jesus. Our contact with saving grace is in the waters of baptism. That's the only difference. We don't have to make a lot out of the fact that we don't know if he was baptized or not. We don't really seem to have that problem with the Old Testament heroes who in chapter 11 of Hebrews are said to uh, be, who are said to have been saved essentially. So let's not make a big deal out of this guy. Let's give Jesus the prerogative he deserves as the Son of God. Yes, ma'am. You make, I, I love the point you're in the direction you're going. We'll get there. Give me two more statements of Jesus. So ultimately, when it comes to this guy being saved, this is Brother Jackson just said. It's God's power and his prerogative. The next statement I do want to bring up is the one that involves, uh, that Brother Jim was talking about. That has to do with Jesus' mother. According to Luke chapter 23, verse 49, we find out that all of Jesus' acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. So how then is he able to have a conversation with one of his disciples named John, his mother? How could he have that conversation if they're at a distance? Well, the people who were, uh, or excuse me, it seems that at some point during the crucifixion, probably in its earliest moments, John Mary and some of the women ventured close enough to hear Jesus speak, and then eventually grew distant. And it's probably in this earlier stage where Jesus noticed them and said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Now why is Jesus concerned with the care of his mother in this moment? Maybe because... Joseph is not available. You notice Joseph is never mentioned? In fact, Joseph, the last time he was mentioned in the Gospels was when Jesus was 12 years old. We never hear about Joseph again. And Joseph's absence from the Gospel narratives after Jesus' childhood leads many, many to conclude that by the time of Jesus' public ministry, Joseph had passed away and Mary was a widow. Thus, it appears that Mary had no husband to care for her after Jesus was gone. And in that day and age, a widow without a, a child to care for her was destined for poverty. So part of the reason Jesus assigned Mary's care to John was likely to be that she would be taken care of without a husband doing it. But you may have caught on to the fact that I said if there's no children to take care of her, and you're sitting there thinking, well, she, Jesus was not an only child. Jesus had multiple half-siblings. So there's another factor here. John's being assigned the care even though Mary has other children who could do it. Well, I think maybe the other issue here is not just that Joseph is available, but that Jesus' siblings 
were unbelievers, at least at this point. If you look at um, John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers were encouraging him to travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And John indicates that they were encouraging him to go to Jerusalem to show himself to the world. Look at verse 5. Now, they weren't encouraging him to do this because they supported his ministry. John chapter 7 and verse 5 says they told him to go to Jerusalem to show himself to the world, but it's because they don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. Not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Now that belief didn't last, that disbelief didn't last forever because they eventually do become believers. You get to Acts chapter 1, down in verse 14, his siblings are numbered among those who were in that upper room on the day of Pentecost. And one of his brothers, James, became a leader in the church in Jerusalem and is the author of the epistle of James. So that disbelief didn't last forever. But at the time of Jesus' death, his brothers weren't believers. So it seems to reason that Jesus, as the eldest son of Mary, wanted to assign her care to someone that, like her, believed in him. Because Jesus knew, and in fact had talked about in that long section from John chapter 13 through 17, how difficult it was going to be to be a believer after he's gone. Jesus knew that being a disciple wouldn't be easy. And at that moment, he did not want to entrust his mother's care to those who were not yet willing to follow him. So I think that's another reason why he chose John, one of his most trusted followers. And if you've been in my class these three quarters, I've shown on a couple of occasions how John most likely is Jesus' cousin and Mary's nephew. Or how it's possible, I shouldn't say most likely, how it's possible that John is Jesus' cousin and Mary's nephew. So there is still family relationship involved. And so maybe it's just a matter of Jesus thinking she needs to be cared for by someone who has faith like her because this is not going to be easy when I'm gone. And that brings us to the fourth statement of Jesus, and this will get around to Miss Nancy's question if we can get through this in time. But the fourth statement is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have to go to Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46 for this statement. And I think there's two primary reasons Jesus made this statement. Number one, I think it's because he, Jesus said in order to reveal his identity as the Son of God. And here's how that plays out. Notice first in Matthew chapter 27 verse 46, how Jesus said these words. I didn't put this on the screen, but if you read the text of Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. The Greek term being translated here is the combination of two words. The first of the words is to scream or to shout, and the second is up. It's a word that means to shout upward, to scream upward. Jesus isn't just calmly saying this. He's shouting this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's shouting this. And that's interesting because there's only two statements from the cross that were told Jesus shouted. 
this one and the last one. We'll get to that one sometime in the future. It's interesting because it's quite possible. It's quite possible that most people didn't hear some of his other statements. When you think about him requesting forgiveness for the crowd or promising paradise to the criminal or making arrangements for the care of his mother, it may be that only the people really close to the cross could hear those statements. But when he's shouting this one, lots of people will be able to hear it. And I think that's intentional because of what Jesus says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That may not matter to you and I a lot, or or mean a lot to us, but that's the first verse of Psalm chapter 22. You've probably been informed of this before. Psalm 22 verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. That doesn't seem to be too significant yet. But if you read through Psalm 22, you find out There's a lot of parallels to the crucifixion. Particularly verse 6 through 8 of Psalm 22, David says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you see the parallel to the crucifixion of what David's writing a thousand years earlier? It really gets clear in verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water, David writes, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You can't get any more clear than that. This is messianic prophecy. Psalm 22 is prophesying the crucifixion of Christ. And so, here's why that matters. When Jesus shouts the first verse of Psalm 22, those religious leaders standing down there at the base of the cross who are the most knowledgeable of the Old Testament, those individuals who are responsible for preserving and presenting the law and the prophets to the Jewish people, those very individuals who knew their Old Testament better than anyone else would know when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that's Psalm 22 and verse 1. And I imagine... that they would start thinking through that psalm all of a sudden. They pierced my hands and feet? Did we just do that? They cast lots for the clothes? Did that just happen? Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was forcing the religious leaders to recall that particular psalm and the prophecies that were fulfilled in the presence of them that day. And as they reflected on the comparison between Psalm 22 and Calvary, Jesus was forcing them to reconsider his identity. In other words, without saying, I am the Messiah, Jesus revealed his identity as he hung on the cross and pointed to an Old Testament passage that associated the events of Calvary with the one who is the Son of God. 
As one author said, by quoting the psalm, Jesus asserted that his death was not a tragic case of misfortune, but a fulfillment of God's plans and God's purposes. So first and foremost, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's referencing a passage that's going to identify him as the fulfiller of Messianic prophecy. That's not all it ends up doing. It also acknowledges his separation from God, and this is where we get to what Miss Nancy was bringing up. Scripture asserts that Jesus the Son and God the Father are united. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I I and the Father are one, and prayed for the unity of his disciples in John chapter 17, saying, uh, asking that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus routinely declared his unity with God. And in saying this, he's indicating that that unity is compromised in some fashion. I'm going to hold off right now. We're going to pick this up next week at this point, because um, I got a lot of material. I mean, we're only number four. We got three full one more, three full more statements to go, and I'm only halfway through the fourth. So we're going to pause here because I just heard the bell. We're going to pause here. We'll pick this up next week. At this time, um, Brother Lyle is going to come up. He has an announcement to share, and then we'll uh, have a prayer in just a moment.